It's not always the big things that change the world. It's the small acts of kindness that happen repeatedly over a lifetime that make the world a better place. So every week we share a story of someone like you who is doing good in the world in their own way. Welcome to Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. I am your host, Carmen Herbert, and I am so excited to be talking to Julie Lee today. Julie, thanks so much for joining me. You're so welcome. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad to talk with you. We were talking a little bit before the podcast started, and I'm excited. There's so much we have to talk about. I feel like it's it's funny that some people you just kind of like instantly can connect with and and things are just easy. It probably comes from you having a podcast too. You're a great conversationalist. So this will be fun. So a little bit about Julie. For those of you who don't know, her Instagram handle is Julie Lee Speak. And she re- recently published a book, I See You, How Compassion and Connection Saves Lives. Coming to understand the power of that message, that compassion and connection can truly save lives, has been one of the most meaningful adventures of Julie's life. Her speeches, podcasts, in her speeches and podcasts, she helps give perspective and compassion for anyone who struggles with psychological battles and anyone who struggles to find purpose and meaning in life. Julie lives in Utah with her husband, Rob, and their two children, Samuel and Lydia. So Julie, let's just jump right in and talk about why you wrote, first of all, have you always wanted to write a book? Like, is this something that you always pictured yourself doing someday? Or was this something that came about from an impactful life experience? Yeah, definitely the latter. Like I wanted to be a children's book author in elementary school, right? Oh, awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't we all want to do that? But no, no. Like even at the beginning of last year, so I published, it got published. I didn't publish it. It got published in September, but like in January, I didn't know I was going to be writing a book. I was contracted to write one in February. It's like crazy how it all came about, but that's it fast. Really yeah. And then I wrote it. I had to write it in three and a half months and it, it was just like lots of grace and prayers and frozen pizza for my children. <laughs> <laughs> which is okay. Seasons of life. They can eat frozen. My grandma said one time, she's like, if ever you're feeling guilty about what you're doing or the work, she's like, kids can survive on McDonald's hamburgers. And I just have taken that advice. Like when it's cereal night or hamburger night or cafe Rio night, you're like, I'm so sorry. But then it's like, oh, but wait, I'm doing something that I feel so passionate and and called to do. And heavenly father will will bless this McDonald's food. <laughs> He'll help us get through it. So so tell me about why you felt compelled or called to write this book, I See You. Yeah. So like we talked a little bit about before, throughout my 20s, when I was 21, I had my first mental breakdown and I struggled on and off for about five and a half, six years of debilitating anxiety and depression PTSD-like symptoms is kind of the most probably common phrase people are familiar with, flashbacks, nightmares, a lot of stuff I hadn't dealt with from my childhood uh, just kind of came to a head during a really tough experience when I was 21. And I never, you know, I'd go to therapists, I'd get on and off medication, and I was just trying to get rid of it. I grew up in a home where I watched mental illness really close up, and I'm a really bubbly, outgoing person, and so I knew it would never happen to me. So you can understand when it did, it was like, I thought my life was over because I'd watched that and I was like, never again, never will that enter my home. So to, to kind of have that darkness come inside me was, was 
hard. I, so we, you talk about having a mental breakdown. What did that look like for you? Uh, it began with a panic attack. I was I was doing student teaching out of state. My husband was in an internship and my mentor teacher was really tough. I really have always enjoyed teaching um, and I worked in elementary school all through college. My professors loved me. I'd have people watch me teach a ton. I was really comfortable in the classroom and I was working with a mentor that, you know, she would just glare at me while I taught. She would belittle me and the children. She was I think a really unhappy person, but I had, I don't know if I've ever worked with such a, a toxic person that had control in my life as far as my career and my education and, yeah. and off what I did. Yeah. And I just was a busy bee working my hardest to get her to like me because most people like me. I think I'm a pretty likable person. Yeah. And um, it was not working. In fact, it seemed like whatever I did just made it worse, our relationship worse. And I was, we were downtown in a big city. And so the commute, between the commute and the hours she expected from me, which was more than I've ever heard expected of a student teacher. I mean, I was gone 14 hours a day with oh this my goodness. in a place I didn't know anyone. You know, I was young, I was 21. And I, at first I could come home, me and my husband would like joke about it. And we'd be like, she's crazy, whatever. I just got to get through it. And five weeks in, I came home and I had my first panic attack and I had been you know, I'd been in the the faculty bathroom at lunchtime, just trying to like stifle back the vomit and shaking and crying uncontrollably, not knowing what was going on. But and it was a tough area. I mean, the, the school is an inner city school. There were dead dogs on the street and trash everywhere. It was a place where I think as a teacher, if you're not careful, you could get hardened. You know, you could get hardened. Those things can make you softer. They can make you harder. And yes. And, and I don't want to make this too much about her, but that, that's where that started that was the tip of the iceberg is because I don't think I ever got those tools of how to deal with negative emotion because I, I learned to stifle those a lot as a kid and to push, push, push those down. And then when that happened and I felt totally trapped, I, I eventually broke and there was just a whole avalanche of stuff that started, started making itself known. And then after that experience, would you say that it was a catalyst for healing and being able to overcome, I mean, and, and understand how better to deal with negative emotions that it, it you kind of had to maybe break down literally completely to kind of rebuild and understand, okay, how I've been doing this in the past, like my body's now saying, can't do that anymore. I'm literally going to shut you down. Like I, I had that happen a, a similar, not, not a panic attack, but a, um, physical breakdown after the birth of my fourth child. And my husband was serving as young men's president and he had just finished a master's degree and, and, and was gone all the time. And we had a lot going on in our lives and I had four kids under six and I remember my little newborn baby, I was giving him a bath and my husband was gone at a young men's meeting and I lifted him out of the bath and my eyes went crossed. And I was like, oh, and they just completely crossed and I couldn't uncross them. And I was like, what's going on? I thought I was having a stroke. And then my mouth went numb and my arms went numb and were shaking. And I like walked over to the bed and put him on the bed. And I sat there and I kept trying to shake my head and shake my eyes back and they wouldn't go back. 
So I called my husband and I was stuttering on the phone. So he immediately knew something was wrong. He came right home. We called our home teacher to come sit with the kids. I called my dad, who's a doctor, and he's like, go to the hospital. Like you're having a stroke. I had all the symptoms of that. They did all the things, all the tests. And based after like four hours, and I have my nursing baby with me and I'm bawling and he's crying. And we're like, what's going on? Basically said, it was like, a breakdown. Like you were so overwhelmed and stressed. Your body just said, stop. And it was, it's called like a neurological migraine. It's called a migraine, even though I didn't have a headache. It was just that like my wires literally crossed in my brain and it was so scary. And after that, my husband's like, we are done. You are done. We are taking time to relax and heal. And even it was even at that moment where he said, our family is complete because we had thought, should we have more kids and let's have six kids and which I would love to have had more children, but it was, I was completely at my breaking, literally at my breaking point. But that was the moment for me that made me think, okay, how I've been taking care of myself and my body it has not been working and not been serving me well. And that is what changed and I'm still working on this, honestly, Julie, like I still work on how do I deal with my negative emotions and my stress and my overwhelm? I'm still trying to figure that out. So after you had your breakdown, how did you then say, okay, how do I rebuild now from here? How do I, was it months of still having the breakdowns? Was it talking to therapists? Was it medication? For me, it was all of the above. What helped you? Yeah. Well, and I had multiple breakdowns to come through the years. And so it was a catalyst though. If I look back, yes, it was, but my learning was not done. Um, because I, I, yes, medication therapy, but what did we talk about with therapy? We talked about, well, the experience that, that created it, that student teaching experience. It wasn't until this happened to me where I'd get off medication and be done with therapy. And then some other change would happen and I'd lose my mind again. I would say that wasn't even rock bottom the first time it happened. Rock bottom came later. It wasn't until I got into a therapist that happened to specialize in childhood trauma that she started digging. Because up till then, I was like, my family's perfect. Everything's perfect there. There's nothing to touch there. Yeah. And I started really seeing a lot of signs and, and of just kind of denial there of like, why do you have to talk about how like, nope, nope, nothing there. Like, why do you have to say that all the time? Can, can I just ask some questions? And then she started kind of pulling out a lot of things. And it was really scary and hard to talk about. And then, and then, so we, but once again, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to do the medication therapy. Okay, I'm good. Okay, let's get off that because I'm not doing that in my life. It wasn't until I was 27 that, and I'm 30 now that I, fi- I had two kids at that point and finally had a therapist that I really, really trusted just look me in the face and a doctor and be like, I have never seen someone do, do, do as much as you do. You work out, you, you know, you like cut out sugar. You did all, I've done so many things to try and fix it. And spiritually like, oh, perfection. Yeah, right. And not see the kind of success we should be seeing. I think you may need to consider long time medication, like permanently. And that was amazing to give up that fight, to give up the fight of that we're at some point there will be a a finish. And instead to say, oh, you know what? We don't know how much is biology. We don't know how much is experience. And, And I still get in that mind game of like, 
where does all this come from? Is this just based on my experience? Is it my genetics? Is it what? And to just give it over to the Lord and just be like, I have a high susceptibility towards anxiety and depression. And you know what? My stewardship here is over my two children. And when I don't take care of that, it makes me like incapable of tying my own shoes. And there's no way I can be the kind of mom I want to be. And so we're done. We're done fighting this. And and we're going to be on some great medication probably the rest of my life. And I'm probably going to do maintenance therapy once a month for the rest of my life. And I it creates like a really happy, beautiful light, life that is full of light and humility to God that I think is exactly what it's supposed to be now. But man, did it take years to get to that place because I'm a really hard worker, Carmen. Like I'm a really hard worker. I was going to work my way out of that. I am, I'm emotional as, as you talk. My dad's, I, I mentioned he's a doctor. He's a psychiatrist and my dad, he for sure helped save my life and make me realize same thing. It is not something that you can work out of or think your way through. I am a huge believer in exercise. I believe that helps so much. I'm a huge believer in getting out in nature, feeling the sunshine on your body. Yes. Meditation, prayer, scripture study, all of that contributes and helps with mental health. But if there is a biological disconnect, something in your brain that physically he's like, it, you're, you're little, like it, it's just not connecting. You're not producing enough serotonin. You have too much dopamine. Like there's actually a medical physiological thing that is not working in your brain and it's okay. It's not your fault. And there's nothing that you, it's not the, anything you can talk your way out of. And this happened to me a couple of years ago too. And at that point, cause I did the same thing. I'd go on a medication. I'd be like, I feel good. And then I'd go off and then I'd crash and be like, oh, I need it again. My dad would prescribe me more and I'd go on it again. And then I'd feel good. And I'm like, I'm good. And I'm like, at what point would I realize the reason I feel good is because I'm doing something for my body that's helping. But there's this stigma still of I'm taking medication. I have to, I have to take a pill. And for some people, my dad said depression can be seasonal. It can be situational. It can come and go. You might not need it the rest of your life, but you might. And it's okay. And my husband really was the one that helped me when after my little breakdown to say, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. Having breakdowns, screaming, crying, not being able to get out of bed in the morning that isn't normal. If medication gets you to the point where you're like, I can function and be a wonderful mom and be a steward to my children, be normal. Why wouldn't you want that? And I had never thought of it like, oh, but I take this, so I'm not normal. Plus we have no idea how many people do or don't take it in the first place, right? Like we don't know what is normal, but he said, why don't you want to do that? And then be at the point where you can function and and not have shame in that. And I'm so happy that you are speaking out about this positively because I think there's so many people I've watched my friends that are like, I will do anything not to get on medication. And they live hard, sad, difficult lives. And I look at them and I'm like, you don't have to live this way. But why do you think in our minds and in other people's minds, why do you think there's that stigma of if I take something, I'm giving up or it's a crutch or it's something that 
that is I'm I'm getting like extra help and 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 I and I don't need it. Why do you think we feel that way? I think because if you have not been that severely depressed and anxious, it, like going out and getting sunshine does help when you feel sad, and exercising does help you. And all, because, like you said, when I'm on medication, those things absolutely help me. Like 100%. I can still have a really down day on medication. It doesn't make me happy all the time. Right. It does. And I like this analogy. I came up with it. So I like it. No, but this makes sense to me. When I was not on medication, after my initial breakdown, I don't know what that did, but it broke something in me. And it's it's never gone back. And And, and I can all day ruminate why that is that that happened? Why, why doesn't it go back after, after one breakdown? It should for other people. Some people it does. We can do that all day, but I just, I don't know all the prayer meditation and and all the mind work I've done for years has what I have come to the conclusion every time is just like, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. What, what it's like for me is it's like being in a, in a house. And when I'm on medication and I fall down, I have a hard day. I have a family member die. I have hard things happen. I fall and I hit the ground and it's hard and it hurts. However, I am still able to look up and see like, oh, there is light coming in outside the window outside. There's, the sun is shining. I'm probably going to feel better eventually. I can have some sort of perspective. Yes. When I am not on medication, it's like when I fall down, there's a trap door and it locks above me. And I fall into this dark basement where there's no light. And it tells me that I not only am I not happy and will I never be happy I also, my brain tells me I've never been happy. I was pretending I was having to work so hard. It wasn't real. That is the difference for me between being medicated and not being medicated for this. And so when I hear people talk or, or be judgmental or all of those things, the only thing I can think about is like, is the quote by Maya Angelou that I love. It's in my book is when you know better, you do better. Yeah. You don't know better it's, it's hard. It's, it's just like, for me, I am a a heterosexual woman. I don't know what it's like to be gay, but I have many friends who are gay. And so for me, I could choose to not trust them and their experiences and be like, well, I, why can't you just do this? this?" Right. You know, why don't, why can't you just be like me or whatever? Or because of these kind of experiences I had, I'm a lot more likely to trust other people about what's going on for them internally because I used to think the same thing. And so I can relate to that. I had a dad that was diagnosed with bipolar and I did not understand why. Why couldn't he be what I needed all the time? Why? And there's agency and there's different ways to handle things. And that's a different conversation. But the truth is, I have been that person who judged another and didn't get it. And so I would just like challenge all of us instead of ha- like trying to learn that lesson the hard way to just trust, trust me, trust Carmen, that it's real. And if you've never needed medication, I am so grateful for you. I don't want you to need medication, right? My husband has not had these kind of experiences. He has bad days. He has not struggled with his mental health in this way. And there's no part of me that wants him to, right? Like I, I don't because he has different challenges, but he has the opportunity to trust me that for me, it's, it's, it's real. It's real. Yeah. It's real. 
And so that it just is, and we can argue all day about why and what, but it's still there. But I after this life, I'm going to be asked some questions. I think I do not think one of them is going to be whether or not I took medication and went to therapy. I think it's going to have a lot more to do about um, how I treated my children and, and my ability to serve others. And I, I can't serve others if I hate myself. It doesn't work. So, so completely true. You talked a lot about compassion and understanding other people and how we really have no idea what's going on in other people's lives and everyone is struggling with something. And in your book, you say how literally the ICU is how compassion and connection save lives. How did you come out of that trap door? Who who, or, or, or what was that compassion and connection that that saved your life? What was it that people did and what can we do to help others that are also struggling with anything from their, their identity, sexuality, mental illness, and have compassion for them? What was it that helped you? Or, or I'm sure there were many, many things, but what were some of the things that helped you? I think a big one is not being afraid of other people's negative emotion and trying to fix that and, and to sit and listen and sit and hold their hand and just listen. Offering hope, absolutely. Sometimes, and I've been victim to this, it is uncomfortable to watch someone else cry. Sometimes it, it's hard. But choosing a rich, full life where we're willing to sit and really see each other and listen, it, it's life-changing and it's life-saving. I had a, a man in my neighborhood, this like big, scary-looking guy. We called him the scary guy in our house. <laughs> And um, he had like a, you know, a big head and a goatee and he's like this big man. And he stopped by our house once. My husband was the elders corn president at the time and he was one of his counselors, but we didn't know him well. And he said, I just felt like I should stop by. He's a super quiet guy too. And I had just gotten home from a doctor's appointment and we were switching my antidepressant because the one I was on wasn't working. I was, this is in a tough, tough place. This is that, that summer of hell when I was 27 and um, I had, you know, my two kids and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm begging to be institutionalized, begging for someone to go like lock me up because I'm terrified of what's going to happen. And he just comes and he sits next to me and he, he just looks at me and he said, things are pretty bad right now, huh? And I was like, and I'm bawling and I'm like, yeah. He said, and you don't think there's any hope. It doesn't feel like it's ever going to get better, does it? And I said, no. And he said, I know. He said, I've been there. And he went on to tell me about when he went to serve a mission and he only made it two days in the MTC and he fell apart with anxiety and came home from his mission. And he said, Julie, I didn't come out of my room for months. And my dad, he, he locked away all the guns and he talked to me about, about, his own experience in a way that wasn't competitive in a way that wasn't trying to gloss over the pain I was in, but in a way of that, like, I see you right now. And I know that what I'm saying feels counterintuitive. I want you to know that I am happy today. And this is where I was at and that we can get you there and you're going to get there. And I'm right here and having someone being willing to sit with you that you don't even know that well and do that for you. Yes. That you have nothing in common with. <laughs> right. Is like 
humanity at its best. Yes. So those kind of experiences, and I can't not talk about the Savior. Um, you know, I begged to be healed. I I would go in my bathroom and I would turn on the fan so that my co- kids couldn't hear me sobbing. And I would just lay across the floor and stretch my arms out and beg for Christ to come and touch his robe. And I just, I was so, all the small faith I had left, I had it. And he didn't come. I said, okay, if you're, if you're not taking this away, then it really is. And I spoke the glory of God all things. How are we going to do this? That's the only way we're going to do this. So it wasn't until a little while later that I was sitting in my kitchen and I was writing in my journal, crying, trying to fix my depression, right? I'm journaling. And my little boy, who was two at the time, he's six now, comes toddling in. And you know, two-year-olds, like they know what they're saying. You have no idea what they're saying. They're just like talking to themselves. Right. Coherency. And all of a sudden, I realize he's trying to get my attention. And I'm just sitting there like this with my hands over my eyes writing. And so I just kind of like wipe away my tears. And I say, Sam, what? What, buddy? And he just looks at me and he says, Mom, Jesus loves you. And then he toddles away. And I just looked at the ceiling. And I just said, thank you. And now, like, yes, I had held him up to pictures of the Savior in our home and said, Sam, Jesus loves you. I had said those things to him before. And so we could speculate that we're just not going to because I just don't think God was not going to save me in taking this susceptibility away. But man, he was going to inspire the doctors and the people around me to tell me what I needed in really critical times. And I knew then that he saw me, you know, and I didn't didn't feel a big warm feeling. It's really hard to feel the spirit when you're that severely out of it. But I, I knew. Well, and with the elders quorum counselor that came over, that experience with your son is so precious. And I don't for a second think that it was coincidental that he came and just happened to say that even though you weren't able, I love that analogy of you thinking like, I have the faith to touch your robe. I have the faith to do it. Let me do it. I know I will be healed. And instead, Jesus Christ sent other people into your life as represent as representatives of his love for you. And that's, I think, like you said, you talked about humanity at its best. I think that's one of the biggest privileges and responsibilities that we have in this life is to literally be the Savior's love for other people, to be there for people that are having breakdowns, that are going through difficult times. We can do that, and it absolutely makes a difference. It, it, it's the most beautiful way to feel the Savior's love when you're serving or helping someone else or when they're serving and helping you, that you literally feel his love through other people. And I wonder if that's why he doesn't come, because he can, of course he could, that he doesn't come in person to each one of us, is that he wants us to be able to feel that for each other and to be able to have empathy like he has for us, for each other. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. He's real. So how have, what do you want people when they read your book? And I know we've talked about some heavy things today and, but, but what is the hope you want people to take away from, from your book and from your experiences and how can people, if they're feeling like they're in that trap door, how can they open that and, and, and feel the light? What is the hope 
that they can look to, look forward to the light through the windows. Yes. Well, and I like that you bring that up because as like, I love sharing my experiences and going deep, but what I love more than that is like, what's the hope? Because my book is really hopeful and my podcast is really hopeful. And yes, I go sometimes and speak at high schools about suicide prevention and I'm so grateful to do it. It's a lot. It's yeah. A lot. I love talking about light. Um, because, and I love talking about emotional resiliency and about seeing other people, because the thing is, we don't want to just save people's lives. Like we want to, we want to love our lives. And I think that's yes. what he wants. He wants us to be happy. And to yes. me, it looks like peace and joy. And so the hope is if you are feeling any of those feelings, and even if it's not that severe, reach out and connect with someone. Do everybody around you a favor. If you're having a hard time loving yourself, the best thing you can do for yourself, but also for the people around you is to reach out and tell someone how you're feeling. If they aren't a great listener and they try and fix it, like so many of us good people do, go to someone else. But I would say the first step is just reaching out and connecting with another human being. Because when we're alone inside our heads, it's real easy to believe some crazy, crazy things. But when we can say it out loud and like bounce our, our ideas off someone else, other people can kind of like catch our thoughts a little and be like, oh, yeah, that's not true. That's, that's, or this isn't normal. Or we can get some kind of a reality check. And I just have to say that when you are, are willing to be vulnerable and to take care of your own needs and, and reach out and, and ask for help. I think you have nothing but happiness and light and joy ahead of you of a rich, fulfilling life where you're willing to be seen as you are in your struggle. You know, I, I'm not on the bathroom floor a lot these days. That's that's not really my reality anymore. And I'm grateful for it. I honor that girl that would send a text message to a neighbor and say, I'm not doing good. I, I'm, I'm not good. Can you come over? What has been the, I was going to ask that, what has been the response? Have you, because that takes a lot of courage to tell someone that. And, but what have you found when you, for people that are like, I'm too scared to ask a friend, I'm afraid they'll be like, get over it, you know, or, or, or be nervous about talking to someone. But what has been your response in, in your experience when you have said things like that and reached out? Um, it looks like the 65 year old lady that lived diagonally for me coming over and cradling me like a baby as I cried and telling me we were going to get through it and helping me put my kids clothes on. And it looked like two sister-in-laws seeing me cry and I started collapsing to the ground and they both ran from each side and like picked me up and held me up and cried. And it, people are amazing. Let them be amazing. And I can't say for every, once again, like you may encounter someone that's has not dealt a lot with this or doesn't know a lot of people and they may say something stupid and that's okay. We can give them grace because when you know better, you do better. So maybe they don't know better, but keep going, man. There are good, good people out there. People have been amazing. Have there been like in me, because my book isn't really a memoir. It's it's a leadership self-help read. And, and when I speak to people, I want to talk about how it relates to them, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but of course, I do always share some of my personal experiences to give context. I mean, 99.9% .9 of people are amazing and they love it. I have had the point one who have, you know, don't love that I'm so open. And, and even a few people that know me real personally, that my story overlaps a little bit with theirs. And so that's a hard thing to navigate. 
but I think that, man, it's worth it. And there's just hope and light. And I think we can live lives full of light and there's miracles that we don't even know are waiting for us. I love that so much. If, if you are listening and interested in Julie's book, again, it's called, I see you, how compassion and connection saves lives. And I love that you talk about how it is, it is hopeful that there's a lot of stuff with COVID last year. I think a lot of people are discovering, wow, I, there's a lot going on in my life and maybe I'm not handling it the way I want to, or, you know, I think it brought out a lot of that in, in people. And I think there's going to be people dealing with just n- normal emotions and for a while after, you know, I mean, the world is different. It has changed. And so I'm glad that there's, this is one resource that people can go to, 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 to say, okay, it's okay if I'm feeling this way and and here's what Julie did. And here's a way I can feel that light and, and hope too. And I think the more we normalize it and the more we talk about it, I know some people aren't as comfortable going deep or sitting in that sadness and having that clouds because they think, well, then I'll just be depressed. If I talk about being depressed, I'll be depressed. But in actuality, if the more we kind of talk about it and, and get it out in the open, it loses its power a little bit. Like here, let's un, let's, let's take it out by the roots and this ugly thing. Let's, let's look at it. And I think we'll find that, oh, it's not as crazy and scary, even as deep and as awful as it seems in our minds. It's way more so than when we uproot it and show it to other people and they say, okay, well, let's, let's deal with this. We can do this. It's not as scary. I think as, as we sometimes make it out to be. 100%. I mean, and the same, the same goes for the saddest tragedy that can, that can happen in situations like mine, which is suicide. It's the, it's the same thing. It's that old school way. We just, we were so scared that if we talked about it, people would do it more. And I think we've seen that that's, that's not really the case. Yep. Yep. I think it's important to talk about and, and to acknowledge and teach our children and, and, and what to do when they have these big feelings and what to do when they're feeling this way, that it's okay. All the, your feelings are valid and emotions are valid and, and all of them, it's okay. Whatever you're feeling, all of them are okay. But then not to be like, okay, well, I guess I'm just depressed and there's nothing I can do about it. And then how do we get past that? Because I, I completely agree with you that men are that they might have joy. And even if the, the trial isn't, isn't taken away, I firmly believe in the scripture that says that the Lord will lift our burdens, even that we can't feel them. He doesn't, he didn't say, I'm going to take the burden away. He said, I will just make it so that you don't even feel it upon your backs. It's your burden to carry, but I'm going to just almost like someone coming up behind you and picking up that backpack. You're still wearing the backpack, but the weight of it is gone. Absolutely. And that's how I feel. I feel sometimes I forget. I've given speeches before with some of these harder topics. And, you know, afterwards I'll have people like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, oh, I'm good. Like, yes, right. I'm sorry I took you there and then I, I didn't bring you back enough that like, no, like my life is so good. Don't be sorry. Yes. yes. I feel so much peace and I feel so much love of my savior every day of my life. Like, no, there's nothing but joy and light. And, and that looks like sadness. Sometimes I have a sister passing away from cancer right now and I'm really sad. Like every day I'm really sad. But I also know who I belong to now and I know about him. And so that that changes things. That changes the way I look at my life. And I'm able to not be afraid to be sad 
so much of my pain before was the struggle of the feelings of being okay with the feelings. Yes. The depression and anxiety was anxiety about anxiety and depression. Of, I can't feel right. it. Yes. Yes. So learning to just like be like, yeah, I don't feel good today. That's okay. Maybe I'm going to wear my sweats today. Still going to get some things done, but like maybe I'm going to take a chill pill about my to-do list and that's okay. That is so, it's like the, the emotions pass by the more we embrace for a second, the more we process through them, Pushing yes. them makes them come out worse in it other times, you know? Totally. And they manifest in, in mental breakdowns and, and, and physical disabilities. And I mean, it, it, they, emotions are energy in motion and they'll come out as negative stuff. And I'm, I'm That's so glad. Feel, I think, right. Take time, to, take some time to feel it. Just yes. Yes. To feel right now. So that maybe later you don't have to pay for it, you know, and be sick later. Julie, you have you have a podcast and you go over a lot of these kinds of subjects in your podcast that people can listen to. It's called I See You. And where can people go to listen to those? I think it's pretty much everywhere. You know, okay. Stitcher, Google Play, all the places. I also have a website, julieleespeaks.com. And my podcast is there as well if you want to listen that way too. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Doing Good today, for talking about some hard things, but for also letting us get to know you more and and feel empathy and, and love for you and for giving us hope that if and and it's almost like take it from me, someone that's been there and done that. Like I promise you there are only good, wonderful things to look forward to if you if if you hang on and reach out yeah. that it it will pass. I think that's the biggest thing is is when you're in that moment, you think this will never go away. Cause it can be years of struggling with it, but that you are you are beautiful living proof that no, it it will and it was years, six years for you that you figured out and struggled and dealt with. And now you can say, No, I am happy. And and people that can't see you right now, like you do radiate that light. You can see that light. You can see that you are happy and hopeful. And and that's just a, a beautiful testimony to you. And I'm so grateful for you for talking with us and for this book that you wrote that you can help other people. So tell us where they can find the book, I See You. Yeah, it's on Amazon. It's in several bookstores. It's on my website, of course, all those links and things. And there's also actually, we also, this is a different story for a different time, but there's a bracelet also that says, I see you on it. Um, as a reminder that God sees you and that you now have the the opportunity to see other people the way that you need to be seen because that really is the next step. It's just like the 12 step program, right? We like kind of figure things out and we feel love for ourselves and then immediately want to share that with other people. And so that's a beautiful place to get. So I wear mine to help me remember the mission of ICU and what it's all about. And it's a good life. You know what? And I, I can I just add one more thing? Yes. Worried I didn't touch on it as far as like, you know, because sometimes it's easy to be like, you'll get there. You're going to be fine. There's only light ahead. As far as the, like what to do, I can only speak from my own experience and my own uh, research, but I just want to say, I feel like I had thoughts that came to me along the way that told me what to do next for years. I resisted a lot of those resources on and off them on and off them. I don't know that it needed to take that long, but for me, that was what the journey looked like. 
I had a really strong prompting to go see my doctor. I had really strong promptings to get outside. So I don't want to make someone feel like it has to be a five to six year process. I don't know for you. But for me, so much of it, it was it was resisting a lot of the resources. So I don't ever want to be a pill pusher or tell someone exactly what theirs looks like because we all are in line for our own personal revelation. Yes. I say open yourself up to all the resources because God has inspired so much to help you here. It's like the story of the man on the boat, right? The man on the boat, someone comes to save him and he says, no, I prayed God's going to save me. Someone else comes to save. No, I prayed God came to save me. And then he dies and God's like, why, why, why? Like, well, you were going to save me. He's like, I sent two boats. I sent two people. Like what? <laughs> These resources, like God is in them. You're not, you're not, not choosing God. You're not, not having faith by, by engaging in the resources. He's inspired others. I'm so glad you said that. It, 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 it's so true that we need to be able to, when we have the promptings that may be uncomfortable, like go see a doctor, go see a therapist. Like those are uncomfortable things. But what's more uncomfortable and harder is sitting with this for longer and going like, would you rather have this for years and try to and keep spiraling? Or would you rather do that really hard, uncomfortable thing and come out of it? And that's if, if, if we can realize that, like sometimes it's just that really hard first step to start progressing and instead of, well, I'm going to stay in this hard and then never get better. And I think part of it is you're not able to see how much it's going to help you. Right. Like you're depressed. You're like, that's not going to work that, you know, I'm never going to feel better. And then you feel better and you're like, holy crap, why didn't I do this sooner? I feel yes. So well, and because again, like you said. Right. And like you said that some medications don't work. You have to try a bunch. Some therapies and therapists don't work. You, you're like, that didn't work for me. It's going to take a while to find what works and what clicks. And yeah. then, but it will just keep going, keep finding that, keep figuring that out. Because there, again, like you said, there is just light and love and happiness and Heavenly Father will help you. He'll be in the details of your lives and he'll put those thoughts in your mind and he'll help and he'll help you get through it. But you have to be open to that. So thank you again, Julie, so much um, for talking with us today and for all of the good you're doing. Yep. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Doing Good with Carmen Herbert, available exclusively inside Our Turtle House. At Our Turtle House, there's something for the whole family, from full-leg talks that you can't get anywhere else from some of your favorite speakers, to fun family home evening lesson plans that follow the Come Follow Me curriculum. There's even short daily devotionals made specifically for your teens. Plus, you can get two months free when you sign up for an annual plan. Just go to OurTurtleHouse.com to get started. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here for another episode of Doing Good next week.